Well, in the grace, mercy, and peace of our loving Lord Jesus Christ, I want to welcome each and every one to our service of worship and celebration. And just before we begin, we want to take a few moments just to deal with a couple of family matters, right? Because in Stanley Park, our family really does matter. So, Paul, you're up first, and you have an announcement for us. Uh, So I'd like to start this announcement with a question. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to die, go to the gates of heaven, and then return to your physical body and continue on with your life? That's a weird question, I know. According to one research institute, 17% of us will experience a near-death experience. And that seems awfully high to me, but anyway, that's the research. All that to say that on February 20th, so week tomorrow, uh, the Grey Matters group will explore how near-death experiences line up with what the Bible says about life beyond the grave and how, um, how medical science and research support this. This is the type of presentation that would be suited to Christian and non-Christian alike. Therefore, if you're interested in coming uh, and attend with us and you know someone else who might be interested in this type of thing and uh, hearing more about it, please uh, consider and pray about uh, inviting them along with you. Again, that's Monday, February 20th, 7 o'clock here at the church. Thanks, Paul. And that's for Great Matters a week from Monday, okay? Uh, Next Sunday, of course, is Family Day weekend, and to mark the occasion, uh, there will be a special hot dog lunch. Uh, It's being served in the cafe right after church. This is to help the kids get into the holiday mood or the, the, the weekend mood and just have it, but we'll have a hot dog lunch, so plan on staying after the service. Go on into the cafe, and we will have some hot dogs available there. Uh, In two weeks, Sunday, February 26th, we will be receiving a special love offering for one of our missionary couples who are going through a particularly difficult time right now, Uh, an issue of fighting cancer, having some extremely high expenses due to having to live away from home, and things like that. Pastor Gary is going to speak to that matter just a little bit more following our service this morning. Also, Bev, you are waving a pile of envelopes around at me, and that means that Bev has income tax receipts available today. So if you haven't received yours yet and you want to pick it up, you can see Bev after the service. Last chance, okay. (laughs) After that, they go in the mail, and who knows how long it'll take, right? Uh, this morning also was really exciting. We started our pre-service prayer time at five fi- at 9.15, not 5.15, okay? <laughs> 9.15, and run for about half an hour till about quarter to 10. And if you would like to join us uh, for a season of prayer, you can come in and go anytime during that time. The door's open to my office. We meet in there. Just come on in, join in for prayer, and then go and do what you need to do for the morning. But you know, the prayer station or the powerhouse of any church is the prayer plant of that church. 
and we need to have prayers of the people coming together, praying for the service, praying for the work of the church. Today we had a small group, but it was a great group, and we had a great time of prayer. So please join us, and when we get too, and when, you, when my office gets too small, we're going to switch with the worship team. They'll go down there, and we'll use the parlor, okay? <laughs> so not a problem. And then following our morning worship, of course, we have the SPBC Cafe. It'll be open. Come on in. Stop in. Have a coffee. Uh, I think they got bear paws that are banana bread or something like that today. Anyway, uh, you can figure that one out when you're there. But, you know, why not do something different and go in and purposely find somebody you haven't talked to for a long time and go and have a conversation with them or just see how they're doing. Or maybe there's somebody you haven't even met yet. Why not go and meet them and say thank you for coming and being a part of our service today. Anyway, that's it for Family Matters this morning, and the worship team's going to lead us now as we worship together. Good morning, church. Good morning. So glad that you're here with us today. Um, you know, it's funny, as we were preparing this morning and even talking with people kind of in the halls, it seems like there was a kind of a familiar theme. Um, it seems like uh, maybe this has been a hard week or even a hard morning for a lot of us. Um, and you know, sometimes when stuff happens, you think of something from your childhood. And I remember this song from when I was a kid and um, it said, I will cast all my cares upon you. I will lay all my burdens down at your feet. And anytime I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. So that's what we're here to do today. Um, so I'll just ask as we, as we prepare that you join with me as we pray uh, just to commit the service today uh, to our God. Father God, we thank you uh, for today and the gift that it is. And um, Lord, we just pray that we will cast these cares upon you because uh, God, we know that you can take it. That God, you are so strong and so mighty and, and your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So God, we just pray today um, that our joy wouldn't just be in good circumstances, but that God, our joy would be made complete in you. Um, God, in what you've done in our lives, how you've taken us from where we were. Um, God, the ways that we used to live and God, you've brought us to um, redeeming faith in Jesus. Um, God, we know that we can't do it alone. We can't do it in our own strength or in our own ways. But God, because of you and because of your spirit, God, we can claim that victory through you. So God, we pray that we will do that today. Um, Lord, we know there's probably some who are here today that maybe, maybe don't know you. Or God, maybe our faith is growing weak. And God, we pray for those. We pray for all of us here. That God, you would fan that flame of our faith. Um, that God, you would help us just to remember that you're not just some person who is in an old book somewhere, but that you are living and active and real. So God, today we just pray that you would take this service, that God, you would take our hearts and our minds, that God, we would cast all of our cares and anxieties down at the foot of the cross and know that it's paid for. God, that that debt is paid. We don't have to live with those burdens anymore, that God, we can come freely and openly and honestly just to bring our praise and our adoration and our thanks to you today. So, God, help us not just to be people sitting in these pews, but, God, to be your church, living and active and ready to do your will here today. So, God, we just pray 
as well that you would have your way with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we'd ask if you're able uh, to please stand with us as we sing.
At this time, I am going to do uh, two things. So I'm going to pray for our kids who are going to go off to their class. And then uh, I'm also going to commit our offering to the Lord as well. So will you please join with me again as we pray? Oh, Father God, we thank you for uh, the amazing gift of these kids. And Lord, how they are learning and growing and doing so many new things every single day. And God, too, we know that they face pressures and, and challenges um, every single day. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, you protect them and that, God, you would keep them and that your face would shine upon them and help them to know how much you love them. So today in their class, we just pray that you would help them just to have uh, hearts and minds and spirits that are willing to receive your message for them today. And God, for their, their teachers, that you would give them uh, wisdom and peace and a whole lot of patience as they lead. And too, Lord, we want to commit our offering to you. God, we know that it's just a, just a small portion of what you've given to us. But God, help us to be faithful givers. Um, God, whether it feels like we have much or little, um, help us to give just an eager anticipation of, of what you will do. God, whether it's, it's here in Kitchener, in Ontario, in Canada, or whether it's somewhere else in the globe, that God, you would take um, just this small little bit that we have, but that God, you would, you would take it and that you would multiply it and use it for your kingdom here on earth. And we just uh, thank you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, kids, I think your leaders are at the back, so you can head on out. Have a great class. Great singing tonight, kids, too. It's great having you with us. Uh, this next song we're going to sing... Um, we used to sing it a lot. I don't think we, I was looking, and I don't think we've sung it for um, a couple years. So, um, if you don't remember it, or if it's new to you, um, we just hope and we pray that it's a blessing to you, um, to your heart, and uh, maybe just speaks to where you're at today. But also a reminder that when we come to the altar, when we come to Jesus, um, He's faithful, no matter what.
Would you bow with me in prayer? Indeed, Father, we come to the altar. We come to the altar because we need, we're broken, we're hurting, and we need you. We need you so much in our lives. God, we come before you, and we call you our Heavenly Father. And yet, in reality, you are the Almighty God in heaven, so far above. And yet, the God who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Sovereign creator and ruler, so very different than what we are. And yet, at the same time, our loving Heavenly Father, who is the very fiber of who we are in Christ Jesus, the God who loves us with a love so rich and deep that we can scarcely understand it ourselves. And so we thank you, Father, for the love you shower over us, for the care and blessing of life you have blessed us with. Indeed, although you are a God to be feared, you are so very, very, very good. Through your love, Father, and your unprecedented goodness, we especially thank you and praise you for, for redeeming the world through your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, the one for whom we, we now live, the one whom we serve with gladness and with joy. As before the throne, we will always declare him to be King of kings and Lord of lords ever mindful of the great sacrifice he made so that we might be saved from our sins, so that we might be made right in your sight. And as we bow before you in the purity of your holiness, in the brilliance of your light, we confess that we are but a people who once again need a touch of your love, to touch and to experience your grace and mercy afresh. So as we acknowledge that we have sinned against you, our holy and, and just God, and against each other far too many times, we don't do what we know we should do, and we do those very things we know we shouldn't do, and we focus on our own self-centeredness and, and our own unrighteous desires. And so we come, Lord, humbly, asking for your cleansing, for your forgiveness, longing for the joy of our salvation to be restored within our hearts and lives, longing to know your forgiving spirit and welcoming arms. So please do your work amongst us, O God, your work of grace and mercy, we ask. There is no question that we are a needy people, and we live in a very needy world, even as we've been reminded this past week with the horrific earthquakes that devastated the people of Turkey and Syria, for the tens of thousands who have died, for the many more who are injured and homeless, grieving losses that we can only begin to imagine. We pray for our brothers and sisters who have made it out alive, and we pray that they will be shining lights in a very dark land and that light that would be shared and experienced by many who desperately need you. We pray for our missionaries serving there, and we ask that you would give them the strength and the energy and the love and the grace to minister in such trying circumstances. We especially pray for the one who had just recently had surgery for cancer and is recovering away from home. 
having to deal with the devastation of the earthquake without being with the very people that they are there to serve and, and to touch their need, O oh God, we ask. Bring wholeness and wellness to them, we pray. We pray, Father, for those who, who need a touch here in, in our own congregation. We think of those who are hurting and suffering. And so we pray, Father, that you would be Jehovah Rapha. We pray for Anne, for Willa, for David and Gail. And we pray that you would meet their needs and bring healing. And may they know your presence in a very special way as they deal with health issues. We also pray, Father, for, for our missionaries who are serving in places where it is very difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would be with them all. We are a needy people. We need your touch in many different ways. And so we pray for one another. We pray for those who are grieving loss of many kinds, but especially the loss of loved ones. Prove yourself to be the good shepherd, for you promised to walk with us through the valleys of death. Wipe tears and courage, good memories, fill the emptiness, for only your love and grace can help us through such times. Thank you, God, for who you are and for all you have done, for all you are doing, even right here in our midst, and that you will yet do. You are our loving Heavenly Father. We praise your holy name, even as we now gather around the word that you have for us this morning. We boldly come and ask in Jesus' strong and powerful name that you would meet with us, you would speak into our hearts and lives, and that we would go from this place rejoicing in the goodness of our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. That's a little bit better. Oh, I got to clap for that. Turn on the mic. This bodes well. Um, today, is, uh, today is a good day. It's always good when we come together in the name of the Lord to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is a privilege. And uh, thank you for joining us uh, for our service of worship here today. Um, I'm going to jump right in to our passage this morning which is a tough one. Uh, I warn you, it's, uh, it's one I, I approach with fear and trembling. And, uh, and I think it's important that we do the same. Uh, so what I'm going to do, if you are able, I'm going to invite you to please stand as I read God's Word this morning from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, right through to chapter 5, verse 11. I believe I have the... Uh, slides here, and let me just read it and um, listen to these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to be buried. And buried him. After three hours, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I don't think I need to tell you this is not a feel-good passage. This is a fear-God passage. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Do you fear the Lord? How much do you fear the Lord? I think we've learned a lot about fear these last two years, specifically about the relationship between fear and submission. We submit to and and follow what or whom we fear most. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Those are two really important ideas there. We have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, but then the knowledge of the Holy One, which is understanding. That word holy is really important. And that word holy and our lack of understanding of holiness is what leads to our lack of fear for the Lord. In his classic tale, well, classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. He goes on <laughs> with these dualities. And my friends, our passage today has a, has a similar duality. The first part of this passage is, is wonderful and encouraging. It's a story of much grace and indeed godly generosity. But the second part is it's sad and it's terrifying. 
It's a story of great fear and deadly hypocrisy. In fact, I was tempted to title this message, A Tale of Two Bounties, or A Tale of Two Offerings, but I didn't, because this passage does far more than just tell a tale. It tells and teaches the truth about what actually happened in church history. It teaches us the truth about the church and the importance of church unity, about generosity and and true fellowship. It teaches the truth about God and His holiness and about us and our sinfulness and just how serious our sin is, especially sin in the church where it threatens our unity as the body of Christ. Our unity, that is exactly what Jesus prayed for. In that amazing prayer we read in John 17, Jesus prayed for those who will believe, which is us, my friends, the future believers, for those who will believe in me through the message, their message, the message of the apostles, here was his prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as as you are in me and I am in you, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Do you recognize here the importance of church unity? It is through our unity as the body of Christ that the world will see and know and believe that there is a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. And that unity was so important. That's that's what Jesus prayed for, that, that we all may be one Now, with that in mind, look at verse 32. Can you read that with me? All the believers were one in heart and mind. Whoa. That's exactly what Jesus prayed for. And it happened. It happened in Acts 4.32. That unity that, that Jesus longed for, looked forward to, and prayed for, they experienced. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And Luke explains how the church experienced this incredible oneness in the next line. He says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. They were generous. They were generous. The word translated shared is the word koinonia. We've seen it throughout this book so far. It's uh, translated fellowship. This was the second commitment of the church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the word of God, to the fellowship, to the sharing, to the koinonia. And my friends, it was radical sharing, radical generosity. In fact, it's so radical that it's led critics over the years to suggest that this was an early form of communism. But nothing could be further from the truth. Koinonia is not communism. The thinking behind communism is what's yours is mine and I'll take it. But the thinking with koinonia is what's mine is yours and I'll share it. And that's exactly what all the believers were in the habit of doing. In fact, Luke stresses that no one, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, which implies that everyone shared everything that they had. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
the world and all who live in it. The early church clearly understood and embraced that fact. Everything they had belonged to God. He owned it all. And that made them very loose-fisted with what he'd given them. It wasn't theirs. He'd only given them that to share with others, to help those in need, and that's what they did. They were ready and willing to share with anybody and everybody, anything and everything. This was likely the purest, most complete unity the church has ever known or ever will know this side of heaven, which is especially amazing in light of just how big the church had become at this point. If you have like a New King James Version, I think probably the first word in verse 32 says the multitude of believers. All the believers. We read in Luke 4, 4, there were 5,000 men. So that doesn't account for the women. Most of the men in the culture would be married. So we're talking of upwards of of 10,000 believers in the church at this point, which makes this oneness, this unity, amazing. How is this possible for 10,000 people from diverse lands and cultures to be all one in heart and mind? Simple. They had all heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was through the apostles' message. What did Jesus pray? He prayed for those who will believe in me. How? Through their message. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news of his resurrection from the dead that we sang about this morning. The believers were unified around the gospel message that the resurrection of our Lord, which verse 33 says that the apostles continued to testify, to preach with great power. And consequently, it says much grace, mega grace was upon them. Grace is God's unmerited favor, was, was bestowed upon them, and it was apparent to everyone around them, including those outside the church. Their sharing, their radical generosity had an impact. The world saw it and was moved by it. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, that they came to Christ just as Jesus prayed because of it. Because these people weren't all just talk. They were walking what they believed. They were living out that love, that agape love of God by giving freely of everything they had to anyone who had need. And so as the apostles continued to preach the gospel and teach the church about the resurrection, people in the church realized that that resurrection power of Jesus Christ lived in them through his Holy Spirit who not only gave them the right perspective about their possessions, it was God first, people second, Material possessions and money, a distant third, that's the order. But he also enabled them, the Holy Spirit did, to give generously, to share without hesitation. And again, this was the most powerful evidence of God's Spirit at work in and through those early believers. Consequently, verse 34 and 35, these are amazing verses. Look at those who, there were no needy persons among them, not one. No one was in need. Everyone's needs were met because they, they could meet them by giving what God had given to them. How amazing is that? Now, <clears throat> uh, it goes on to say, from time to time, those who owned land sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Okay, so it's at this point 
that Luke now introduces us to an incredible example of this generosity, a role model named Joseph. Some versions translate that Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, as we see right there. It's a good nickname to have. Um, one commentator said his, his moniker was his ministry. We're going to read a lot about Barnabas later on in this book. In fact, he's, he's a favorite of Luke. He's mentioned like 23 times in this book. He's, he's an associate of the Apostle Paul. I don't want to give away what's, what's ahead of us, but Barnabas is, is significant. And of course, we, we read here that, that he's from the island of Cyprus, which was in the Mediterranean Sea. So that was his nationality. And then religiously, he was a Levite, a descendant from the priestly tribe of Levi. But Luke's focus is not on Barnabas' ethnicity, but on his generosity. And it's just summed up with this very simple statement in verse 37. He sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Plain and simple. Now, to be clear, Barnabas did not have to do this. This, this was not... The, the disciples weren't asking people to go and sell their, their lands and their fields and, and bring the money. He chose to do this. Seeing the needs of those around him, he considered how he could help meet those needs. And so, hey, I've got a field. I don't need that. I can sell that. And that's what he did. And he brought the money to the disciples and laid it at their feet. Which, by the way, that act of, of laying the money at the feet of the disciples was an act of humility of submission, and of trust. He wasn't looking for credit. He wasn't trying to tell the apostles how to use this money. He just said, no, it's yours. Do with it as you see fit to meet the needs that, that you're aware of. The fact is, my friends, God's church has always and will always rely upon the generosity and faithful, financial faithfulness of people like Barnabas. That's many of you. <laughs> and uh, that's how God designed the church to work. He designed it to, to be able to support itself by the generosity he gives us through his Holy Spirit. In Luke six thirty eight, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. God has given to us in order to give to others to be a blessing. <laughs> to each other and to support each other with everything he's given to us. If God's people didn't give generously, faithfully of their finances to the Lord's work, my friends, the church couldn't make it. <laughs> Elaine will tell you that. And that makes us so grateful to all of you who give faithfully to the Lord's work, to the ministry of the gospel here. Um, we live in this materialistic, tight-fisted society, don't we? Where generosity, it's easy to talk about, but it's, it's hard to put into practice, especially when inflation is on the rise. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be a generous people. Like the early church, to see our money and possessions in light of Jesus' resurrection, to see these as temporal things that will pass away, and yet things that can have an eternal impact when we use them for your purposes. So, Lord, remind us that everything we have is a gift from your hand to be used for the furtherance of your kingdom and your glory. 
Help us to hold things loosely like Barnabas, to be sensitive to your spirit and to the needs of those around us, ready, willing, and eager to give freely of our resources to help those in need. Amen. If only that was the closing prayer on our passage today. It's not. Unfortunately, this story doesn't end with Barnabas' good example. It, uh, it gets dark. <laughs> we, we pick up the story. The story continues in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, where it says, Now, or but, the story continues. This is not a separate passage. It's the same story. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Okay. There was a couple in the community of believers named Ananias and Sapphira. Now, unlike Barnabas, we're not told where they're from or what tribe they belong to. They're not given any special nickname. No. The only detail Luke gives us is their names and the fact that they also, also sold a piece of property. That word also is important because it implies that they did this in response to what Barnabas had done, to to his offering. So the question is why? See, Barnabas was incredibly generous. He had bought and sold the land and given that money to the apostles. And Ananias and Sapphira decided to, to do the same thing, to sell a piece of property of their own. Now again, keep in mind, they did not have to do this. This was voluntary. So, based on verse 1 there, it seems okay, right? Would you agree? I mean, it's, it's a good thing. It seems noble, in fact. Generous. So what was the problem? Verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The Greek word translated kept back there is found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the, in the story of Achan, which we read of in Joshua chapter 7. And as the story goes, Achan held back some of the spoils from Jericho that were supposed to be dedita- dedicated to God. And for holding back that portion, he received a death sentence. This story is connected here. There's only one other instance in the New Testament where this word translated hold back is used, and that's in Titus 2.10, where it's translated steal, to steal. Point is, Ananias kept back intentionally, kept back part of the money from the sale of the property for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, now we're going to get into what he actually did that was wrong here because through the power of the Holy Spirit, God gives Peter this supernatural knowledge. He's able to look at Ananias and not just see this outward action of this offering, but to see his heart. And here's what Peter says in verse 3. Ananias, how is it 
that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land, for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter recognizes that Satan is the instigator here. It was Satan who had so what filled his heart, which, by the way, is a direct, deliberate contrast to chapter 4, verse 31 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, where it says this, the believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Same word. So we have the believers being filled with the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God boldly. And here we have Ananias filled with Satan to lie to God. Um, This is a sobering warning and a reminder, I think, to all of us that Satan's influence is very real. The devil's on the prowl. God's word tells us that he's out to steal, kill, and destroy lives through his lies, tempting people, especially God's people, to think that sin is no big deal. But make no mistake, his goal in all of this is to destroy us. He hates God. He hates God's people. He hates the church. But here's the thing. Satan can't do your sinning for you. You, you choose that. I choose that. We choose that. So the question is, what did Ananias choose? Well, Peter makes clear that the land and money that he got for it belonged to him. And so he was completely free to do whatever he wanted with that money. So withholding the money, that wasn't actually the crime here. The crime was withholding the truth. He deceptively implied that he had sacrificially, generously given all the money from the sale of the property to the church, to the Lord's work. That, that was what that act of laying it at the disciples' feet represented. This is, all, this is yours. This is everything I have, and I'm, I'm giving it to you. And it was a lie. The lie of the worst possible kind, because it wasn't just a lie to the church or to the apostles. This was a lie to the Holy Spirit of God, who is God, fully God, completely God. He lied to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of every true follower of Jesus Christ. And my friends, I think it's important to remind ourselves that whenever we think, speak, or act in a way contrary to his holy nature, the Holy Spirit is grieved. As we saw in the first part of the story, the incredible generosity of Barnabas and and all those in the early church was a work of the Holy Spirit. So in deceiving the church with with this deceitful counterfeit generosity, Ananias, and by implication his wife Sapphira, were lying directly to the Holy Spirit, who again, Peter makes clear, he's God. You have lied to God. Ananias was a poser. He was a hypocrite, much like the Pharisees. You remember those guys? Jesus uh, condemned the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, their pride, 
They, they wanted to be praised for their righteous acts. They would get out on street corners and pray so that everyone could hear them, hear how eloquent they were with their speech to God. And yet it was empty. It was meaningless. It was all a show. They wanted the praise of people, not God. And Peter does the same thing. Like the Pharisees, Ananias, he, he wanted praise and applause and admiration and, and the respect of the people. He wanted to look good and godly in their eyes by giving it all, supposedly, to the church. My friends, his lie was rooted in pride. Pride corrupts the human heart. Pride corrupts the church like nothing else. God hates it. He hates pride. In fact, we read this, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Underline that word fall because that's exactly what happens, literally in this case. Ananias, verse five, when he heard this, he fell down dead. Now, notice Peter doesn't pronounce a death sentence on Ananias. He simply confronts him with his sin, and as soon as Ananias heard it, as soon as he realized that he'd been found out, he dropped dead. For many Christians stuck in, in sinful patterns, their greatest fear is not in sinning itself, but in being exposed. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sins will find you out. We don't know the physical cause of death. We don't need to know that. All we know is he dropped dead. Many surmise it was a heart attack from the shock of his sins being exposed like this. We do know the result, though. And here's the result. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Jews didn't embalm bodies. They would often bury the body the same day, especially if the person's death was a result of God's judgment, which they clearly believed this was. This was an act of God. And this, my friends, is, is what's really hard for us to swallow, isn't it? It's so outrageous. It, it doesn't seem fair. It's, it's so harsh. I mean, come on, this is, the, this is the New Testament, not the Old Testament, right? We're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, right? Many Christians react this way um, because I think we, we go soft on sin. Maybe it's because we know we're guilty of the same sort of thing, <laughs> We fail to take sin seriously. And the reason we fail to recognize the seriousness of our sin, my friends, is because we fail to recognize and respect the holiness of God. Or we choose to ignore it because it's easier not to think about. We do not fear him as we should. And so we soft pedal sin. We, we learn how to live with it and, and in it, knowing that God will forgive us. What do we do? We assume. We assume that there's always going to be time to repent and get right with God. All we have to do is confess our sins. We know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But my friends, that, that attitude is, is 
treating God's grace and mercy really as, as a license to sin. It's treating him with contempt. Any amount of time God gives us to repent is an undeserved gift of God's mercy, which we learned last week is not receiving what we do deserve for our sin. He doesn't owe that to any of us. And so we should never assume it'll always be there. You see, what's really outrageous is not that God judged Ananias immediately and harshly in this case, but that he delays and holds back his judgment in virtually every other case, including our own. Thanks be to God, my friends, that this is the exception and not the rule. Because the reality is Ananias received exactly what he deserved and what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. However, this judgment also needs to be seen and understood in light of the historical context of the church, which, my friends, the church was still a baby. It was still in its infancy. It had just been born of the Spirit, had taken root, and was now flourishing. It was a critical time of growth, purity, generosity, and unity. As we saw in verse 32, they were one perfectly in heart and mind, the church. And so for this kind of sin, this kind of scandal, this satanic influence to, to infiltrate the church, it could have corrupted it to its core. Sin had to be cut out. God's people needed to be reminded of just how serious sin is, how heinous and harmful hypocrisy is, and how much God in his holiness hates it. It's what Jesus suffered, bled, and died to deliver us from, my, sin, my friends, our sins. He didn't set us free to walk back into the prison cell of our sin and indulge and meddle in it. Romans 6.1, Paul writes, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. How can we who, how can we who died to sin live in sin any longer? We need to ask ourselves that question and thank God for his mercy. We sang about his mercy this morning. The forgiveness that Jesus Christ paid for with his precious life his perfect blood shed for our sins. Thanks be to God. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her body beside her husband. And again, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So three hours later, we don't know where Sapphira was, but... She comes back, presumably into the room where the apostles were meeting, where Ananias presented that gift, and Peter confronts her about her involvement in this, and tragically, the results are the same because she was complicit. She knew and shared in this deceitful plan, and she lied about it point blank, and again, she didn't lie just to the apostles, but to God. 
And consequently, Sapphira shared her husband's fate. In fact, not only did she lie, Peter says she what? Conspired to test the spirit of the Lord. You know who does that? Satan. That's what Satan does. In fact, Jesus rebuked Satan in his wilderness temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Sapphira, clearly also under Satan's influence, was testing the spirit of the Lord by deliberately lying, presuming upon God's patience and tolerance. And so just like her husband, as soon as she was found out, she dropped dead. Okay. Uh, I think it's important to point out that there is nothing said here about their eternal state, their eternal condemnation. Uh, Just because Ananias and Sapphira both died does not necessarily mean that they lost their salvation if they had it. I appreciate uh, what pastor and commentator James Boyce wrote. He said, true Christians do not lose their salvation by sinning. The punishment of Ananias and Sapphira, though extreme, was for this life only. Now, only the Lord knows their hearts. If they were true Christians, he's the only one who knew that. It's impossible for us to say for sure. I think it's important that we don't know. Because we don't need to know. The point is, we need to do what the word says and what the believers, the early church did. What was their response? They feared the Lord. They were reminded of just how serious God is about sin. The reason Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead is not because this happens to all hypocrites. Because if that was the case, we'd have a room full of dead people here. We've all, we've all lied We've all been hypocrites at one point or other in our lives. The reason they drop dead is to give this stunning, sobering warning to the church, teaching us to fear the Lord. This is the lesson I think Luke wants us to get. Again, we see that twice, both in verse 5, it says, great fear came upon all who heard of this, and then verse 11 there, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events just want to ask you this. Can you imagine how much more seriously we would take our sin if this sort of thing happened today? Thankfully, God doesn't have to do this because he has given us his word. He's taught us this lesson. His word judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, my friends, and that is my prayer, that we'll allow his word by the power of his Holy Spirit to convict us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, to conform us more to the image of Christ to do the work that that it does, that he does through it. But this story should cause us to tremble. It should instill in us a healthy fear of the Lord, which obviously Ananias and Sapphira lacked. And tragically, my friends, I think that's the case across the board in the church today, not our church, (laughs) every church. It's, It's apparent, isn't it, in just how casual Christians are in their witness and their worship how soft they are on sin. So as we consider this passage today, please do not be tempted to think that was then, this is now, God would never do that to me. Instead, we need to remember, 
as we read in Galatians 6-7, God will not be mocked. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And my friends, the church had never grown in wisdom and understanding like it did after this event. Uh, If we refuse to stand in fearful awe of the Lord, my friends, we are unwise. We're fools. This should also teach us submission to and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. It's apparent that Ananias and Sapphira lacked an understanding of, of the Holy Spirit of God. Clearly, they didn't understand that that he is fully God, that he knows everything, including their thoughts and and their deepest heart's desires, and that he was present there that day. If they were true followers of Christ, they had learned to ignore the Holy Spirit's convicting and leading in their lives. And consequently, they'd become callous to sin, seeing it as a a license, God's grace, to to sin and, and indulge in it more thinking no matter how devious or hypocritical they were, that God would tolerate them because his grace is sufficient. May we learn from their deadly mistake and repent, my friends. The truth is we're all guilty of hypocrisy, but as soon as we recognize it, or sin of any kind, be it pride, greed, selfishness, envy, lying, coveting, cheating, stealing, idolatry, immorality, anything and everything that falls short of God's glorious standard laid out in his word is a threat to the unity of the body of Christ. And that will lead to division, discord, and disunity. It's no coincidence, by the way, this is the very first time in the book of Acts that we see this really beautiful word. Church. How interesting, the very first time that Luke uses the word ecclesia, church. Ecclesia, do you know what it means? It means a people called out, separate, set apart from the world, called out in holiness to God. The very first time is in response to to God cutting out sin from the church and the people responding with fear and trembling before the Lord, whom we're called to worship, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God's holiness demands holiness. He is holy, therefore we are to be holy. Why, how? Because he's given us his Holy Spirit to lead us into the truth, to purify our hearts. My friends, may we fear the Lord, our God who is holy. We were reminded last week that we are his chosen people. In fact, Peter same guy who <laughs> pronounced that truth to Ananias and Sapphira wrote this many years later. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to just close in a word of prayer this morning and just before I do that, just ask you just to quiet your hearts, invite God to search you, know you, know and test your anxious thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in us, Lord, and cleanse us, lead us in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace your unmerited favor. Thank you for your mercy, your unmerited forgiveness. 
poured out through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we don't deserve any of this. Our salvation is a gift of your grace through faith, and that is also a gift from your hand, Father. And we thank you today, collectively here as your people, for saving us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us to save us, and we thank you for opening up our eyes to that truth and saving us unto yourself, making us right with you. Father God, forgive us for when we are not right with you, for when we allow sin back in. Search our hearts, God. Test us. Know our thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions, wash away all our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions, our sin is always before us, Against you, you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. But Father God, help us to go away from here today (laughs) trembling, trembling and grateful for your amazing love and grace poured out through Jesus Christ. And Father God, help us, help us to be vigilant in our fight against sin and self and Satan in this world. Father God, help us to stand firm on the truth, to submit to your Holy Spirit, to be led in and and obedient to the truth, and to shine your light as beacons of truth in this world, Father. We are your church. So Father God, use us. Build us by your power that is at work here within us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And um, as we respond, I'd ask that if you're able uh, to please stand with us as we sing.
is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be way to close our service, important and fitting, uh, that that be the cry and the prayer of our hearts, that we would be set apart for God, our Savior. Uh, Before I pronounce the benediction, I would just uh, encourage you to join us for a time of fellowship in the gymnasium following our service. Uh, And also, if you can just please stay, we're going to end our live stream. And then if you can just stay for a minute, I just want to give you a really short but important announcement about what we heard about earlier, the love offering that we'll be collecting. So I'm going to pronounce the benediction, just have a little bit of music, and then just if you can stay for a few moments, and I will share that important announcement at the finish of our live stream. Now receive the Lord's blessing from Jude to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority throughout Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.